the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Today we're going to talk with Kimberly Ells. She's the policy advisor and author of The Invincible Family. We're going to talk about her op-ed piece that appeared on Town Hall a day or two ago. Uh, saying that the Black Lives Matter movement could pave the way for international law enforcement. Um, kind of an interesting piece. I would have thought it entirely implausible until uh, I heard about uh, the attorney for the uh, Floyd family calling on an international body to intervene in the case against the, the police officers responsible or being held responsible for George Floyd's death. We'll talk with her about that in the five o'clock hour. And we'll hear from John Plake. He's with the American Bible Society. We'll take a look at the State of the Bible 2020, their latest survey uh, that occurred in January and June, which gives us an, a glimpse into how the pandemic is impacting Bible engagement. So that's coming up later in the five o'clock hour as well. Taking a look at some of the day's news, uh, China is harboring a fugitive military-linked biologist here in the United States, according to the FBI. A biology researcher who falsely denied a role within the Chinese military to obtain a visa and gain entry into the country is being sheltered in the U.S. consulate in San Francisco, according to court documents filed by the FBI. The filing is part of a document that cites other cases in which Chinese nationals allegedly lied on their U.S. visa applications by hiding their military affiliation. Tang Wan, a researcher at the University of California, Davis, indicated on her J-1 visa application that she had never served in the military. But open source investigation revealed photographs of her in the uniform of the civilian cadre of the People's Liberation Army and that she had been employed as a researcher at the Air Force Military Medical University, which is another name for FMMU, Fourth Military Medical University, the FBI says. Well, later, during an interview with the FBI agents uh, in June, Tang denied serving in the Chinese military, claimed she did not know the meaning of the insignia on her uniform and that wearing a military uniform was required for attendance at the 4th Military Medical University because it was a military school. The investigation ongoing. In other related news, the daughter of an imprisoned Uyghur scholar is speaking out seven years after her father was arrested boarding a flight to the United States. KT McFarland says Trump is the first leader to finally fight back against China amid a decades-long Cold War. And Gordon Chang reacts to the Houston consulate order saying China is deliberately stoking racial tensions. And China has threatened retaliation after the U.S. ordered the closure of that consulate in Houston. Well, the mayor of uh, the city of Portland, our town, Wheeler, joined protesters for an outdoor demonstration last night. But instead of uh, finding harmony within the group he has supported, he was unceremoniously told to resign. 
protesters who projected four key demands on the side of the Multnomah County Justice Building, including defunding the police department by 50 percent and freeing all protesters from jail, also listed his resignation as a demand. The demonstrator said the city should redirect money from the police into the community, especially the black community. Uh, One personal aside, law enforcement is an investment in a community where there is lawlessness, and that is the case all over the city of Portland. Um, lawbreakers are not going to simply wherever the black community happens to be and defining that as a whole nother uh, issue. Uh, law enforcement uh, not being available uh, is not going to be helpful under many circumstances. When Wheeler began to speak, however, shouts and taunts from the crowd nearly drowned him out. So he thanked attendees for coming out to oppose the Trump administration's, as he put it, occupation of the city and asked them to continue to resist the presence of federal agents. An interesting choice of words, the occupation of the city. Um, seems that the, the uh, mayor is a bit tone deaf. In other related developments, Governor Brown compared federal officers to secret police abducting people. Wow. Oregon Democrats are formally requesting investigations into the Department of Homeland Security, the Department of Justice response to Portland's riots. And the uh, DHS chief has promised uh, that we will not retreat from Portland despite criticism and tells rioters to find another line of work away from federal facilities. And the uh, secretary hit back at the Portland mayor uh, saying he is completely irresponsible, claiming that the feds are escalating the unrest. Well, Lady Liberty stands tall in New York amid lightning strike at New York Harbor, which may be somewhat telling. And Derek Chauvin, the now fired Minneapolis police officer being held for the death of George Floyd and his wife have been charged with tax crimes. Tom Cotton, um, in an editorial, the, uh, the New York Times is running for a Chinese scientist, is slamming the U.S. virus response, saying this is entirely inappropriate. You um, fired personnel or they were encouraged to leave over my op-ed as a duly elected sitting senator. Uh, and this uh, propaganda that's being um, presented by this Chinese scientist is breathlessly Uh, produced. The White House and the GOP agree on virus testing and a new aid bill, and coronavirus made the stock market an investment favorite, 28% of Americans, according to a study. Well, Austin has won Tesla's new factory, and they are rejoicing. Well, during a town hall where they weren't uh, able to control his every word, the former vice president called Trump's America, Trump America's first racist president, By his sentence, Biden is saying owning slaves, using the N-word and all the other awful things past presidents have done are not racist, the Washington Post suggests. Amy Swearer points out, I seem to remember several presidents who owned slaves, a president who threw 100,000 American citizens into detention camps because of their Japanese ancestry, a president who screened birth of a nation in the White House and uh, resegregated federal agencies. That was on Twitter. And the Washington Examiner writes in another story reminding us Biden's suggestion that Trump is the first racist president contradicts numerous activists who have called for removals of names and statues of past presidents because of their racist words. Just another slip by Uncle Joe. Well, Portland is crumbling as Democrats look the other way. That's the national headline. Portland is crumbling. Now, we know, those of us who live here, that it is a relatively small area in the downtown Portland area. But Byron uh, York writes, Oregon officials seem in denial about what is taking place around the courthouse. Just because the disorder has not spread to the entire city of Portland, they suggest everything is really okay. Portland, Oregon is not out of control. Democratic Representative Earl Blumenauer, who 
represents part of Portland said on the House floor on Tuesday. To be sure, there are some people who have strong feelings and there are some who have done things that are inappropriate and unlawful. But that is the challenge of local officials and our state officials to manage it. I would add if they choose to. Problem is, local and state officials, he went on to say, are not managing it. Portland police have taken pains to say that they are staying away from the crowds attacking the courthouse. After Sunday night's rioting, uh, Portland police have taken pains to say that they are staying away from the crowds attacking the courthouse. After Sunday night's rioting, police issued a statement to make clear they weren't anywhere near the rioters. From Kimberly Strassel, as a native Oregonian who still has friends and family, I can attest that what is happening in Portland and has been happening for several years bears no relation to peaceful protesting, Antifa, anarchists, riots. Well, several police may have permanent eye damage from protests using lasers. And now a city commissioner is blaming the police for fires. The chief has um, responded. She has since, by the way, rescinded that accusation as patently false. Last night, the mayor of Portland tried to appease the rioters, but they verbally abused him. That's the, uh, the culture that we're in. The Democratic rep from Oregon is refusing to believe things are out of control, even though they are out of control. Well, New York Times is pushing the Chinese propaganda in an op-ed, as I mentioned a moment ago, with criticism of the president and the United States on how we handle the coronavirus from a molecular neurobiologist uh, bio- uh, in China. This is uh, from the same New York Times that apologized for running an op-ed from U.S. Senator Tom Cotton. And Rutgers is dumbing down the entire English department to benefit the BLM movement. How is this not an insult to minorities? Well, it is. Under a so-called critical grammar pedagogy, this approach challenges the familiar dogma that writing instruction should limit emphasis on grammar sentence level issues so as to not put students from multilingual, non-standard academic English backgrounds at a disadvantage, the email says. Instead, it encourages students to develop a critical awareness of the variety of choices available to them with regard to micro-level issues in order to empower them and equip them to push against biases based on written accents. In other words, you will not be employed uh, if you don't know how to read or write or speak well. Now, when I say well, I'm not talking about accents or the use of slang. Teach it the right way, and people can choose how they want to apply it. This is just so frustrating to me. Well, most Americans have political views they're afraid to share. That's a new study. We'll talk more about that when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll continue to take a look at some of the day's news. Also want to remind you, coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Kimberly Ells. She's a policy advisor and the author of The Invincible Family, Why the Global Campaign to Crush Motherhood and Fatherhood Can't Win. We're going to talk about her recent op-ed in Town Hall regarding the Black Lives Matter movement, which could pave the way for international law enforcement right here on U.S. soil. We'll also talk with John Plake with the American Bible Society. We'll talk about their just-released report, State of the Bible 2020. This year, they did two surveys, one in January, the second in June. And of course, the June survey would tell us something about how COVID-19 is impacting Bible engagement. He'll join us in the second hour of today's program. Back at some of the um, news stories of the day, Most Americans have political views they're afraid to share. A stunning 62% of all say that, overall rather, say that the political climate prevents them from saying what they believe, which is part of what the political climate is designed to do. Conservatives, far more than liberals at 77, 
and 42 percent, respectively. And it turns out liberals are far more likely to support firing someone simply due to their political donations. This according to the Cato Institute. We'll talk more about that uh, survey in a, uh, a few moments. Well, few Americans favor the so-called cancel culture uh, from the story a plurality, or 46% of Americans, believe that cancel culture has gone too far. About a quarter of Americans, many of whom are perhaps blissfully offline, said they didn't know or had no opinion on the matter. I hope we sharpen our attention on things that do matter. Democratic um, presidential nominee Biden is spending uh, his spending plan, jumps into the trillions as he promises to implement much of the far-left agenda. Uh, individuals on the campaign trail he defeated. A popular high school teacher has been fired for showing support for Donald Trump on social media. He simply said, I'm done being silent. Real Donald Trump is our president. So that's what he said. Donald Trump is our president. He was fired. Which explains, of course, this survey that says 62% of Americans are afraid to express their political views. Uh, Benjamin Nichols points out in his uh, recent Daily Signal uh, column that self-censorship is on the rise, according to a new Cato Institute survey that reports nearly two-thirds of Americans are afraid to share their political views. They found that 62% of us say the political climate today prevents us from saying what we believe. This is up several points from 2017, when 58% of Americans said that they were afraid to share their political beliefs. 31% of liberal, 30% of moderates, 34% of conservatives are worried their political views could get them fired or harm their career trajectory. A recent poll conducted by Politico found that a a plurality of Americans believe cancel culture has gone too far as well. There have been shifts across the board where more people among all political groups feel they are walking on eggshells, the Cato survey found, adding majorities of Democrats at 52 percent, independents at 59 percent, and Republicans at 77 percent who all agree they have political opinions they are afraid to share. Strong liberals stand out, however, as the only political group who feel they can express themselves. Nearly 6 in 10, or 58% of staunch liberals, feel they can say what they believe. A majority of centrist liberals, uh, who in 2017 said they could express their views freely, now say they have uh, to self-censor. According to the Cato survey, self-censorship spans all ethnicities, with 65% of Latino Americans, 64% of Caucasian Americans, 49% of African Americans say they have political views they are afraid to share. This large number across the uh, demographic groups suggests with, um, uh, withholding opinions may not simply be radical or fringe perspectives in the process of uh, being socially marginalized. Instead, many of these opinions may be shared by a large number of people. They may be mainstream. Both surveys, Cato and Politico, suggest that those who engage and support cancel culture are a vocal minority in America, not the majority. And while online shaming may seem like a major preoccupation for the public, if you spend a lot of time on Twitter, only 40% of voters say they have participated in cancel culture, and only 1 in 10 say they participate often, according to Politico. So this is the climate and the environment we find ourselves in, which, by the way, poses a serious uh, concern for pollsters who are trying to gauge the temperature of the uh, general public. If people are unwilling, unable uh, to say what they actually believe, and I think this happened with the 2016 election. That's why the polls indicated that Donald Trump was not going to win. People didn't want to admit that they supported Donald Trump policies. They may not have liked him, but they supported his policies. 
people were not willing to say that out loud. I mean, we've seen a series of things that happen to people who speak clearly about what they think. Anyway, that's the uh, those are the surveys. Uh, let's see. Um, Senate Republicans announced Wednesday evening that they have reached a fundamental agreement with the White House negotiations on how to move forward with the coronavirus relief bill, according to NBC News, adding that legislation remains fluid and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has indicated that he wants to keep the price tag at one trillion. I'm sorry, that kind of caught in my throat. One trillion. Unfortunately, the Hill further notes Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin on Thursday indicated that a payroll tax cut won't be in the coronavirus relief bill that the Senate Republicans are expected to start unveiling shortly. NBC News is also revealing the House approved legislation Wednesday to rid the U.S. Capitol of statues of Confederates and a bust of Roger B. Taney, the chief justice who wrote in 1857 the Dred Scott decision that said black people, me and my family, couldn't be citizens. And it said much worse than that. But nonetheless, the bill overwhelmingly passed on the vote of 305 to 113. The legislation would direct the architect of the Capitol to remove the bust of Taney, which sits outside the old Supreme Court chamber at the Capitol, and replace it with one of Thurgood Marshall, the first black justice on the high court. The bill easily cleared the Democratic-controlled House, but it's unclear whether Republicans will take up the the, uh, bill in the Senate. Even if Congress passes the measure, the president would have to sign it, and the president has repeatedly defended these memorials. More than 280 Wall Street Journal cancel culture warriors have signed a letter protesting misinformation in the paper's conservative opinion pieces. Now, the editorial board and the opinion piece tends to be more conservative than the paper in general, calling for fact-checking opinion pieces. Well, House Democrats uh, futilely vote to repeal Donald Trump's travel ban as the Senate is unlikely to vote on it. That's what happens in Washington these days. President Trump announced a federal surge against violent crime and the wave of Uh, in blue cities and Houston, we have a problem. Chinese consulate there is closed by the administration was a hotbed for spying, they say. Meanwhile, China is harboring a military-linked biologist fugitive at their San Francisco consulate. Taiwan fears a growing threat of attack by China. The United States has vowed to protect Taiwan. What might that mean? And in the latest COVID-19 news, U.S. coronavirus deaths surpassed 1,000 for the second straight day. California, with 421,000 total cases, that's total, surpassed New York, though New York had 24,000 more deaths. So we're talking about cases versus deaths. Most major schools are heading toward online classes, according to USA Today. And weekly jobless claims turn higher. 1.416 million file for unemployment benefits. One third of U.S. museums, which average 850 million visitors annually, may not survive the year, according to a survey by NPR. And gun purchases are up an unprecedented 95 percent. Ammo, 139 percent. Cancel the police. Self-protection is what people are uh, preparing for. Predictably, gender-confused women sued the Catholic hospital for refusing to remove her uterus. Washington Examiner goes into greater detail. And Patricia McCloskey's gun didn't work. So a prosecutor ordered it reassembled and then declared it lethal. That's the woman uh, who, along with her husband, brandished weapons outside their home after a security gate had been uh, broken through by protesters. They brandished their guns, but apparently Patricia's gun didn't work. So the prosecutor put it together so it would, so that she could be charged with brandishing a real lethal weapon. The Sierra Club is disowning its co-founder over racist comments he made over 100 years ago. By the way, if that were the um, the measure, we'd have to cancel most of uh, this country as 
Um, racial epithets have been used by so many, it uh, would be difficult to keep count. I've heard many of them myself. I could provide a list if you'd like. This day in history, 1967, the first of five days of deadly rioting erupts in Detroit as an early morning police raid on the unlicensed bar results in confrontation with local residents that escalates into violence that spread into other parts of the city. 43 people Mostly black people are killed. 1967. 1829, rather, William Austin Burt receives a patent for his typographer, a forerunner to the typewriter. Ask your grandparents if you don't know what that is. 1914, or you can ask me. 1914, Austria-Hungary presents a list of demands to Serbia following the killing of Archduke Franz Ferdinand by a Serb assassin. Serbia's refusal to agree to an entire ultimatum leads to the outbreak of World War I, the scope of which is uh, difficult to even fully comprehend. 1990, President George Herbert Walker Bush announces his choice of Judge David Souter of New Hampshire to succeed the retiring Justice William Brennan on the U.S. Supreme Court. 1999, on this day in history, Space Shuttle Columbia blasts off with the world's most powerful X-ray telescope and Eileen Collins, the first woman to command a U.S. space flight. 2003, Massachusetts Attorney General issues a report saying clergy members and others in the Boston Archdiocese probably probably had sexually abused more than a 1,000 people over a period of six decades. And finally, on this day in history, 2019, the Senate overwhelmingly passes a bipartisan bill to ensure a victim's compensation fund related to 9-11, September 11th, a tax never runs out of money, fulfilling a pledge made by President Trump and ending years of uncertainty. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Portland will immediately ban all police bureau members from cooperating with federal law enforcement or intentionally using force on or arresting journalists and legal observers under new policies the city council passed on Wednesday. Commissioner Chloe Udaly, who crafted and introduced the last-minute resolutions, Commissioner Amanda Fritz, Joanne Hardesty, and Mayor Ted Wheeler unanimously voted to approve the new rules, calling them necessary as President Donald Trump has refused to remove federal officers from the city. Portlanders have taken to the streets for eight weeks to protest police brutality and systematic racism, although much of that is lost in the mayhem and have been met with force from city and federal officers leading to injuries, arrests, and lawsuits on both sides of the line, officers as well as uh, rioters and protesters. Uh, The ban on coordinating with federal officers cites an unprecedented and unconstitutional abuse of power by the federal government as reason for the discipline any Portland police member will uh, receive if they provide, request, or willingly, willingly receive operational support from any agency or employee representing the Department of Homeland Security, the U.S. Marshal Service, Federal Protective Service, Customs and Border Protection, or any other federal service while they are occupying the city. Occupying is the choice of words uh, by city leaders. Occupying, actually occupying federal facilities from which they emerge when things escalate. Well, the smear attacks leveled against our officers, um, says the acting secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, Chad Wolf. Uh, against our officers is disgusting, he says, on Tuesday at a press conference addressing the federal government's efforts to protect federal property here in Portland during the violent riots and protests that ensue late in the evening. Even though the U.S. Customs and Border Protection deployed uh, to Portland are required to wear camouflage, they are civilian police officers, not military, and the insignia and patches 
uh, on their uniforms clearly show this, Wolf explained. The smear attacks leveled against our officers is disgusting as it relates to CBP officers deployed here. These highly trained officers are in multi-camouflage uh, wear because they work on the southwest border and they work in an environment that demands that. That is their everyday uniform and it is completely appropriate. They have insignia on their uniforms that read police and they have patches that indicate what agency they are from. Secretary Wolf uh, criticized media for falsely claiming these officers are military. He said that portraying these civilian officers as stormtroopers or Gestapo is both dishonest and offensive. And then he repeated himself saying these officers are not military. Let's not confuse that. I've seen inaccurate press reporting accusing them of being military. They are not. They are civilian police officers, not stormtroopers, not Gestapo, as some have described them. The description is offensive. It's hyperbolic. And it's dishonest. And it goes on. Meanwhile, Governor Kate Brown yesterday convened the first meeting of her Public Safety Training Standards Task Force. The task force will make recommendations to the governor to improve the training and certification processes for Oregon law enforcement officers, including systematic changes in in, uh, to incorporate racial equity into hiring and training. We need to take real and concrete action to reform police training in Oregon, she said. I'm asking this task force to center racial equity and racial justice as it begins its work. Now, I'd like to see some of these protesters, some of whom, um, it seems to me, and I'm talking about the, the rioters, seem disinterested in the core issues around which all of this began. I'd like to see them sit down for some constructive dialogue as they have been invited in several forums to do just that. My guess is they won't because they're too busy doing other things. And again, I make a distinction between protesters who are well-intentioned and those who are rioters, and that is their uh, their intention. I'm disappointed uh, that those who are peaceful and legitimate demonstrators don't call out the violent um, uh, allies. Uh, I think that would make their cause much more palatable to many residents of the city of Portland. Well, Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler on Wednesday was booed, heckled, and called a fascist by rioters in the city as he tried to attend a listening session about ongoing unrest, becoming the latest liberal mayor to be shunned by protesters with whom they had sought to show solidarity. Wheeler, who for weeks has been backing the protests against efforts by federal law enforcement to stop the rioting, joined the protesters at fencing near the Hatfield courthouse and tried to conduct a listening session. However, while some protesters were receptive to his presence, many others heckled and booed him, objecting to his refusal to back some of their demands, such as abolishing the police. And for the Portland police's um, use of tear gas and other methods to shut down riots. Um, The words used to uh, refer to him, I cannot repeat, but one protester shouted, according to video posted by a reporter, he doesn't get to speak. He is a fascist. And then again, some offensive uh, words used before his name. At another point, a restless crowd, including a protester calling him a, uh, well, I can't repeat that either, while others chanted, tear gas Ted has got to go. Later, when he said he would not commit to abolishing the Portland police, the crowd booed him, yelling other expletives and told him to get um, out using expletives and warned ominously, your house is next, doxing even the mayor who purportedly supports the uh, events. New York Times correspondent Mike Baker, who recorded many of the scenes on camera, reported that as Wheeler suffered the effects of tear gas, one protester asked, how does it feel, Teddy? Baker reported that others threw bottles and other objects at him. He was quickly whisked away to safety. Sadly, many of the business owners in that area don't have the same luxury of simply being whisked away.
Meanwhile, a retired Marine who carried an American flag through Portland protests says the terrorists have taken over his city. This retired uh, Marine Corps officer, Gabriel Johnson, who's looking for unity when he carried the American flag into the Portland protest, instead found nothing but anger and lawlessness. I fought for this country, and uh, and this is not what I fought for. Uh, He happens to be African-American. He's a retired uh, Marine. For more than 50 nights, Gabriel Johnson, 48, a retired Marine, has um, kept awake by the sounds of rioting and explosions taking place outside his window in Portland. After two months of living in fear, at 3 a.m. on Sunday, he had had enough. At that point, he said, I counted 82 explosions and just thought, you know, anybody has to, uh, somebody rather, has to do something. Living only a block away from the Mark O. Hatfield Courthouse in downtown Portland, which has become the epicenter for the violence that's overtaken this that portion of the city, he marched into the chaos with his American flag in hand, apparently not afraid to speak his mind. While he expected his actions would be derisive uh, to some, the retired Marine was not prepared for the reaction he got. I was being called the N-word by black people. People were chasing me around with baseball bats, he said. And while the Marine Corps veteran experienced many eye-opening events that night, there was one thing he saw that shocked him the most. Antifa has infiltrated Black Lives Matter, he says, and says he described uh, a woman dressed in Black Lives Matter gear who showed him threatening footage of protesters following him back to his home and letting him know they were keeping tabs on him. This is a Black Lives Matter individual. According to Johnson, this woman was also holding an Antifa pin and was communicating with others via walkie-talkie. These people have nothing to do with black lives, he says. Our black community leaders need to stand up, which they have, and lead because what's happening is they're letting a group of terrorists that don't represent me use me, and that's not right. He goes on uh, to say more about that experience, which I fear is more common than not. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a quick break and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I want to remind you, coming up in the second hour of today's program, Kimberly Ells will be my guest. She's a policy advisor. She's also the author of the forthcoming book, The Invincible Family. We're going to talk about her op-ed in Town Hall uh, regarding the Black Lives Matter and the fact that that could pave the way for international law enforcement as the attorney for the Floyd family has called upon international forces to intervene or oversee what happens in the uh, trials of the three police officers responsible for George Floyd's death. We'll also talk to John Plake with the American Bible Society. Their State of the Bible survey is complete. We'll let you know what they found. Well, Portland City Commissioner Joanne Hardesty on Wednesday alleged that police saboteurs and provocateurs are the ones starting fires and infiltrating crowds of demonstrators who've uh, dominated the streets for more than 50 consecutive nights in Portland. She later apologized after the um, unsubstantiated claim was quickly shot down by the city's police union. I want people to know that I do not believe there's any protesters in Portland that are setting fires that are creating crisis. I absolutely believe it's police action and they're sending saboteurs and provocateurs, she said at the time. Hardesty said in an online briefing hosted by the Portland-based Western State Center. Well, Portland Police Association President Daryl Turner slammed Hardesty's outlandish accusations 
demanding that she immediately produce evidence. He also said the city's commissioners, commissioner rather, was guilty of hijacking the protests about racial justice in the wake of the death of George Floyd, only to seize power. With statements like this, it has become completely clear that Commissioner Hardesty is part of the problem in Portland. Every one of um, the many videos we have seen confirms that small groups of rioters are starting the fires. Let me repeat that. Small groups of rioters are starting the fires and trying to burn down buildings. Even a quick search of Twitter shows rioters setting the fires and boldly claiming responsibility, Turner said in a statement. Of course, there is no such evidence. This is just one more example of Commissioner Hardesty's putting her personal political agenda ahead of the best interests of the citizens of Portland. And again, the Portland commissioner has since apologized after claiming police saboteurs were responsible for fires set in the city of Portland's downtown area. Meanwhile, President Trump is deploying 100 federal agents to Chicago to help combat rising rates of some crimes, a move that marks an expansion of the White House's intervention into local law enforcement as the president continues to position himself as the law and order president. The surge of agents announced on Wednesday in Chicago and other American cities as part of Operation Legend, named after four-year-old Legrand Teleferio, who was fatally shot while sleeping in a Kansas City apartment late last month and comes as federal law enforcement officers have already descended on Portland. The effort to shut down police in their own communities has led to a shocking explosion of shootings, killings, violence, and murders, the president said during a speech in the White House East Room. This rampage of violence shocks the conscience of our nation, and we will not stand by and watch it happen, end quote. While sending federal agents to aid local law enforcement is not unprecedented, Attorney General Bill Barr announced a similar surge uh, effort in December for Seven cities that had been spiking in violence, the type of federal agent being sent, and some of their tactics have raised concerns among state and local lawmakers. In the 1960s, the early 70s, the U.S. was convulsed by massive protests calling for radical changes in the country's attitudes on race, on class, gender, and sexual orientation. The Vietnam War and widespread college um, deferments were likely the fuel that ignited prior peaceful civil disobedience. But this revolution we're seeing today isn't like the 60s. Victor Davis Hansen points out that sometimes the demonstrations became violent, as with the uh, Watts riots in 65 and the protests at the 68 Democratic Convention in Chicago. Terrorists from the Weathermen um, bombed dozens of government buildings. The 60s revolution introduced to the country everything from hippies, communes, free love, mass tattooing, commonplace profanity, rampant drug use, rock music, and high divorce rates to the war on poverty, massive government growth, feminism, affirmative action, and racism gender, ethnic college curricula. The enemies of the 60s counterculture were the establishment, politicians, corporations, the military, and the square generation in general. Leftists then targeted their parents who had grown up in the Great Depression. That generation had won World War II and returned to create a booming post-war economy. After growing up with economic and military hardship, they sought to return to comfortable conformity in the 1950s. A half century after the earlier uh, revolution, today's cultural revolution is vastly different and far more dangerous. Uh, Hansen writes that government and debt have grown. Social activism is already institutionalized in hundreds of never uh, newer federal programs. The Great Society inaugurated a multi-trillion dollar investment in the welfare state. Divorce rates soared. The nuclear family waned. Immigration, both legal and illegal, skyrocketed. Thus, America is far less resilient and far more divided 
indebted, and vulnerable target than it was in 1965. Today, radicals are not protesting against 1950s conservatism, but rather against the radicals of the 1960s, who as old liberals now hold power. Uh, Now, many of the current enforcers, blue state governors, mayors, and police chiefs are from the left. Unlike Democratic Chicago Mayor Richard Daley of the 60s, today's progressive civic leaders often sympathize with the protesters. The 60s protests were for racial assimilation and integration to um, rectify Dr. Martin Luther King's agenda uh, agenda of making race uh, incidental, not essential to the American mindset. Again, a major difference. Not so with today's cultural revolutionaries. It seeks to ensure that racial difference is the foundation of American life, dividing the country between supposed non-white victims and purported white victimizers, past and present. In the 60s, radicals rebelled against their teachers and professors who were often highly competent that um, the products of fast-based and inductive education, not so in the 2020 revolutionary. Uh, today's radicals were taught not by traditionalists, but by less educated, older radicals. Another chief difference is debt. Most public education in the 1960s was bare bones and relatively inexpensive because there were no well, plush dorms, latte bars, rock climbing walls, diversity coordinators, and provosts of inclusion, college tuition in real dollars was far cheaper. The result was that the 1960 student radical graduated without debt and for all their um, hipness could enter a booming economy with marketable skills. Today's angry graduates owe a collective $1.6 trillion in student loan debt, much of it borrowed for a mediocre therapeutic and politicized training that does not impress employers. College debt impedes maturity, marriage, child raising, home ownership, and the saving of money. In other words, today's radical is far more desperate and angry than his college gambit never paid off. Today's divide is also geographical in the fashion of 1861, not just generational in the 1960s. The two blue coasts seem to despise the vast red interior and vice versa. Yet the scariest trait of the current revolution is that many of its uh, sympathizers haven't changed much since the 1960s. They may be rich, powerful, influential, and older, but they are just as reckless and see the current chaos as the final victory in their own long march from the 1960s. Corporations are no longer seen as evil, but as woke contributors to the revolution, or at least those who are woke. The military is no longer smeared as warmongering, but praised as a government employment service where race, class, and gender agendas can be greenlighted without messy legislative debate. Unlike the 1960s, there are essentially no conservatives in Hollywood, on campuses, or in government bureaucracies. So the war no longer pits radicals against conservatives, but often socialists and anarchists against both liberals and conservatives. In the 60s, a huge silent majority finally had enough, elected Richard Nixon and slowed down the revolution by jailing its criminals, absorbing and moderating it. Today, if there is a silent mass of traditionalists and conservatives, they remain in hiding. Again, the survey, 63% of which are too afraid to speak. If they stay quiet in their um, veritable mental monasteries and deplore the violence in silence, the revolution will steamroll on. But as in the past, if they finally snap, decide enough is enough and reclaim their country, then even this cultural revolution will sputter out too. But that is by no means a certainty at this point. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. Uh, Then we'll uh, continue to take a look at why some revolutions fail, and we'll hear from Kimberly Ells. She's the policy advisor and author of The Invincible Family. We'll talk about her recent uh, op-ed that appeared in townhall.com. 
uh, regarding the attorney for George, uh, George Floyd's family that has called for international oversight, uh, which may lead to uh, pave the way for international law enforcement on U.S. soil. We'll get into um, all of that in the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Today we're going to hear from Kimberly L. She's a policy advisor, and she also is the author of an op-ed that appeared in Town Hall a day or two ago. BLM, could it pave the way for international law enforcement? She's referring to the uh, hue and cry raised by the family of George Floyd and their attorney, Uh, calling on international overseers from the United Nations to uh, step in in the case of the three police officers charged with the death of George Floyd. We'll also talk with John Plake with the American Bible Society on the State of the Bible 2020 survey that's just been uh, released and completed, all of that coming up this hour. Joseph LeConte wrote an interesting piece, um, Why Some Revolutions Fail, and I wanted to share excerpts of it um, with you because I think it's relevant to what we're seeing today. He writes that soon after the start of the French Revolution on the 14th of July, 1789, the English statesman Edmund Burke saw storm clouds on the horizon. Under the banner of liberty, equality, and fraternity, the French revolutionaries not only attacked the dreaded Bastille prison in Paris, They assaulted the most important historic institutions in France, the monarchy, the aristocracy, and the Christian religion. In his reflections on the revolution in France, Burke warned of political revolutions that despise everything that came before them. People will not look forward to posterity who never look backward to their ancestors, he wrote. And it is a familiar um, vision because we're living through that right now. Well, he goes on. We know the rest of the story. Barely a decade after executing their hated monarch and after years of political instability, social chaos, and the remorseless violence of the guillotine, the freedom-loving revolutionaries installed an emperor to replace him. Napoleon Bonaparte, dictator for life, would plunge continental Europe into war. Near the heart of America's cultural crisis today is a failure to grasp the profound differences between the two great revolutions for freedom in the 18th century, between the events of 1776 and those of 1789. Intoxicated by lofty visions of an egalitarian society, the revolutionaries in Paris took a wrecking ball to the institutions and traditions that had shaped France for centuries. Virtually nothing, including the religion that guided the Uh, The lives of many of their fellow citizens was sacrosanct. We must smother the internal and external enemies of the Republic, warned Maximilian Robespierre, or perish with them. Their list of enemies, past and present, was endless. Then, uh, the men who signed the Declaration of Independence in Philadelphia, by contrast, did not share this rage against inherited authorities. Although the Americans, in the words of James Madison, did not suffer from a blind veneration of antiquity, neither did they reject the political and cultural inheritance of Great Britain and the Western tradition. They did not seek to invent rights, but rather to reclaim their chartered rights as Englishmen. From both classical and religious sources, the American founders understood that human passions made freedom a vulnerable state of affairs. Political liberty demanded the restraints of civic virtue and biblical religion. The French revolutionaries, on the other hand, took a different view. Paul Henry Thier, Baron uh, de Halbach, one of the most uh, influential French philosophers of his day, spoke for many when he said, To learn the true principles of morality, men have no need of theology, of revelation, or gods. They have need only of reason. They have only to enter into themselves to reflect upon their own nature and consult 
their sensible interests. Sound familiar? Well, this sanguine and thoroughly secular view of human nature underwrote the French political project. In their democratic society, all of the base and cruel passions would be enchained, while the sentiments of generosity and brotherhood would be awakened by the laws, they reasoned. The revolutionaries sang an anthem to political utopianism and the likes of which had never been heard before in Europe. The Americans rejected it as rejected this anthem as dangerous nonsense. Instead, the founders in 1776, living in a society animated by Protestant Christianity, held a hopeful but deeply sober view about the prospects for Republican self-government. Benjamin Franklin captured the essence of it when, emerging from a constitutional convention in Philadelphia, he was asked what kind of government the framers were de- delivering to the American people. A republic, he said, if we can keep it. A major concern of the Federalist Papers, perhaps the most significant reflection on the nature of political societies ever written, is the problem of human self-interest, the threat of factions, what we would call tribalism, weighed heavily on their minds. Thus, in the American and French revolutions, we encounter starkly different journeys toward freedom, starkly different journeys. Though defending, along with John Jay and Alexander Hamilton, the American Constitution, Madison identified factions as the mortal disease of popular government. The latent causes of faction are thus sown in the nature of man. So strong is this propensity of mankind to fall into mutual animosities that were no substantial occasions uh, presents itself, the most frivolous and fanciful distinctions have been sufficient to kindle their unfriendly passions and excite their most violent conflicts. Here's the most challenging aspect of any democratic revolution, preserving freedom over the long haul, a sound constitution embodying concepts such as limited government, the separation of powers and equal justice under the law is essential. Good political leadership is also important, but so is civic virtue, the capacity to govern oneself and to work for the common good. And for that, the founders believe democracies needed the moral ballast of religious belief. In his farewell address as president, for example, George Washington took a swipe at the French philosophies. Whatever may be conceded to the influence of refined education, reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. Reverend John Witherspoon, the only minister to sign the Declaration of Independence, reinforced the prevailing view, saying that he is the best friend to American liberty who is most sincere and active in promoting true and undefiled religion. Ironically, it was a Frenchman, Alex de Tocqueville, who confirmed Burke's worst fears about the events in France, because the revolution seemed to be striving for regeneration of the human race, even more than the reform of France, de Tocqueville wrote. It lit a passion which the most violent political revolutionaries had never, revolutions rather, had never before been able to produce. This zeal, he added, took on the appearance of a new kind of religion, without God, without ritual, without life after death. Thus, the American and French revolutions we encounter have starkly different uh, journeys toward freedom, two conflicting visions of human nature and the nature of political societies, a republic, if you can keep it, or the dawn of universal bliss. Well, herein lies the source of our current crisis, the willingness to trade the legacy of the American Revolution for that of the French. What path will we take? It's an unanswered question. Perhaps the welfare of the city of man really does depend, after all, on our belief in the city of God. Again, Victor Davis Hanson, or Joseph LeConte, rather, uh, making the point. 
Now, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I would love to share David Limbaugh uh, suggests that America's survival hangs in the balance. We'll get to that on another uh, day. Uh, we're also going to look at um, the perils of mail-in ballots and why there are serious questions being raised about switching to them sort of midstream. Uh, you know, it took Oregon, what, five years before we moved to a mail-in ballot. Uh, it's fraught with all kinds of potential dangers, although some would minimize those dangers. Others would suggest this is precisely um, uh, the direction that we should go. We'll try to get into that on another occasion, but I don't, uh, I'm not going to have enough time to do that now. I do want to remind you that coming up, we're going to talk with Kimberly Ells. She is a policy advisor. She's also the author of the forthcoming book, The Invincible Family, Why the Global Campaign to Crush Motherhood and Fatherhood Can't Win. The book is published by Regnery, but I've invited her onto the program to talk about her recent uh, op-ed that appeared in Town Hall a day or two ago that suggested that the Black Lives Matter movement could pave the way for international law enforcement. When you leave a vacuum, uh, the UN is uh, and the UN is called upon to fill that vacuum. They are all too uh, ready to uh, to step in. Is that a possibility? We'll talk with her about that, and we'll speak with John Plake, who is with the American Bible Society. Their tenth annual State of the Bible uh, 2020 report has been re- uh, released this year. They did it a bit differently, and we learned some things about how COVID nineteen is impacting Bible engagement. So we'll talk with him about that when he joins me also later this hour. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Now, back in June, you may have noticed that the Floyd family's lawyer, this is George Floyd's family, Ben Crump, officially appealed to the United Nations for help. And he argued that the U.S. is so consistently flawed that it couldn't be trusted. Well, now, as city councils are crippled, local law enforcement is struggling, protesters mass to demand the police be defunded, and riots continue to spread across the country right here in Portland as well as in Chicago and elsewhere. It's clear America is undergoing a fundamental shift, and BLM, Black Lives Matter, could be paving the way for UN-directed law enforcement. Now, in her recent town hall op-ed, Kimberly Ells, policy advisor and author of The Invincible Family, she argues that purging our police forces will leave a power vacuum that the U.N. will happily fill and that BLM and millions of protesters would likely sanction. Well, in a pattern the U.N. has already repeated in the education sphere, inserting itself in curriculum to promote early sexualization and the teardown of the nuclear family to increase the progressive power of the state. This is reason for concern. Well, my guest joins us to talk about that. Um, As I mentioned, she's also the author of The Invincible Family, Why the Global Campaign to Crush Motherhood and Fatherhood Can't Win. It's an optimistic title. We'll touch on that a bit as well. Kimberly Ells, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This was such an intriguing headline. And uh, while I had a friend who recently told me that he envisioned U.N. troops in November coming to the United States during and following the elections, and it seemed improbable to me, but the, what you raise in your op-ed uh, really makes it a serious concern. Uh, talk a little bit about the Crump, uh, the attorney, Mr. Crump, who claimed the federal government of the United States cannot be trusted to fairly prosecute the officers who have been charged with the death of George Floyd. Well, I, like you, would 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 have thought not that long ago that this was 
improbable and and some might even think impossible and we would most of us hope that that would be the case but yes. as you point out the fact that uh Ben Crump called upon the United Nations specifically to intervene is very intriguing and I think very troubling and we need to look at that and why why would that be the case and there's a few reasons it, it you know if you call on it's as if um you know there's there's a playground spat and you're calling in a, a, a higher power and, and when you do this with the United Nations it, it's kind of suggesting incompetence on the part of the United States government that we can't handle our we can't work out our own problems and it frames the, the United Nations as a higher better governing body with more legitimacy than the United States of America which just isn't the case and, and can't be the case if we want to re retain our sovereignty and it, it, it's inviting the United Nations to intervene in in U.S. law dealings, which is which is very troubling. Well, it certainly is troubling, and and I, this isn't the first time the UN has been invoked. But under our current circumstances, it seems that uh, it might be taken more seriously, not only by the UN, as I mentioned a moment ago, who would love to come in and intervene, but by uh, men and women with authority here in the United States, inviting them to intervene in U.S. law enforcement dealings. Uh, how serious is this request, and how likely is it? What would have to happen in order for them to actually come in and uh, begin to oversee this process? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question to think about. And in the end, we'll, ha we'll have to see how things fall into play. Obviously, none, very few people want this to happen, but, but uh, some people do. There's a group of people that are welcoming yes. a, a more global uh, government. In fact, just yesterday, you may have seen that Antonio Guterres, the Secretary General of the United Nations, said that a new model for global governance is coming. He's, those are his words. And he said the intent is to redistribute power and wealth. And he referred to what he calls a new global deal. But what it is is the same old deal uh, of some people trying to usurp the power and, and push socialistic uh, principles, this time on a global global level. And so there there is a mind and an appetite for global governance uh, among certain spheres of people. And so um, this is being welcomed to kind of prime the pump. And we, we need to be keenly aware of that and, yes. and assert our sovereignty in every way that we can. Absolutely. Uh, you write that the writing on the wall is becoming clear. Abolishing local law enforcement will pave the way for international law enforcement. And at some future time, will we end up with U.N. troops in light blue uniforms patrolling U.S. streets? Should we expect to see fewer human rights violations committed by U.N. peacekeeping troops than by U.S. law enforcement officers? And that's such an important question. If, in fact, the U.N. were to insert itself and they were going to take over uh, law enforcement, uh, is this a better <laughs> is this a better force than we currently have? Is there a track record we can look to that says, yeah, you know, the United Nations is really the way to go? The answer clearly is no. But answer that that question. Yeah, thank you. So it, it's the question is almost laughable. And, and most anyone who knows much of anything about the United Nations track record and peacekeeping would be horrified at the prospect of, of peacekeepers being on, on our soil. And I, I outlined in the article just several, only a few of the many, many sexual offenses yes. committed by UN peacekeepers across the globe. Sexual offenses against children, absolutely horrific. Just time after time, food for sex scandals. There was one poor boy, I believe he was 13, who said he couldn't remember how many times he'd been forced to perform sex acts on soldiers in order to get food. And so this, this, is, this is alarming. We, this is not a system that is going to be better for us. If our police system has weaknesses, and it does, we can address those. 
but bringing in a, a global force or even even hinting at doing that uh, is is uh, not going to be better for anybody and that's been proven time and time again one of the things you point out is the irony of a UN force coming in that is very comfortable in their immunity, knowing that they're not going to be held accountable or caught for crimes that they may commit. And that's the very issue. That's one of the issues that's being uh, championed as uh, being jettisoned uh, with law enforcement here in the United States. This would be a, a form of immunity on a whole nother scale. Right, and we just can't have that. And there's been no so we have all these horrific things that have been happening for years and years, sexual scandals at the United Nations level. And interestingly, there's been no commitment at the highest levels to permanently waive immunity for sex crimes against children, or to grant outside entities the power to to charge people, UN people or UN connected peacekeepers for their sexual crimes. They've failed to do that. And so what makes us think that, that there's somehow going to come in and achieve equality of, of the races or in any other way if they haven't even been able to, to handle their own problems or weigh their immunities that, for grave crimes that have been committed? And they, haven't, they don't, haven't even allowed outside sources to charge UN staff for, for known offenses. And so it, it's, it's just a catastrophic model, and it's something that we need to avoid at, at all costs. In fact, you uh, write, the irony here is palpable. Two of the very things the Floyd family and Mr. Crumb petitioned the United States, United Nations to do was to assist in putting an end to the doctrine of qualified immunity and establishing an independent commission to review, investigate, and prosecute. Again, uh, it is a, uh, a palpable uh, irony. Now, you've written more broadly on international uh, imposition within the family. Your latest book is The Invincible Family, Why the Global Campaign to Crush Motherhood and Fatherhood Can't Win. It's an optimistic title. Why are you optimistic that the uh, international community cannot win in their effort to crush uh, the nuclear family? There is a great deal to, to hope for. Um, you know, we see so much crumbling around us and it's, we're all so concerned. We see this chaos in the streets and uh, we're kind of wondering where this all came from. And while there's many forces at work, I think we're all beginning to feel this undercurrent that much of it springs from the utter breakdown of the family and of, of teaching in the home, of power in the home. And as, as simplistic or old-fashioned as some people might find that, it, it is, in fact, the truth. You know, Ronald Reagan said that, that all great change in America begins around the dinner table in, in a family. And so as we're sitting and watching all these, all these things happen around us, the best and strongest thing we can actually do is start change in our own families and, and ground our own families in, in true principles and, and steering them away from global, global governance and into, you know, free market systems and, and freedom and liberty and, and all these things. And the reason why I say the family is invincible is because it, it can't really be crushed. It, you know, governments crumble, um, dynasties come and fall. You know, the, the history of the world is riddled with fallen fallen leaders, but what, what always comes back? It's always the family, and it always will be because that's rooted in our anatomy. There's male, female, together they make new life, and that's, that's the primal thing, and it, it will always rise. Oh, I love that. The Invincible Family, published by Regnery, if I'm not mistaken? That's correct. And currently available? Yes, invinciblefamily.com and on Amazon or anywhere books are sold. Hey, thank you, Kimberly. I really appreciate your op-ed and look forward to reading the book. Thank you so much. Again, Kimberly Ells is a policy advisor and author of The Invincible Family, Why the Global Campaign to Crush Motherhood and Fatherhood 
can't win the book published by Regnery. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the American Bible Society has released their 10th annual State of the Bible report. It shows cultural trends in the U.S. regarding spirituality and scripture engagement. The report uh, reveals findings from two surveys, one that was conducted in January of this year with the Barna Group and another this June that demonstrates the effects of the pandemic on the faith community. We're going to talk about what that data shows with my next guest, John Plake with the American Bible Society. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Georgine. Thank you for taking time to talk about this important subject. Absolutely. Now, this is the 10th annual report. For listeners who are unfamiliar with it, what is it intended to tell us about scriptural engagement? The State of the Bible Research Project over the last 10 years has been our effort to kind of take America's pulse about their beliefs and attitudes around the Bible, as well as the degree to which people are interacting with Scripture and taking value from it. And so we look at uh, Americans' interaction with the church and how their interactions with the church and churched people often lead them to Scripture and to a deepening relationship with God. Now, in this case, you did the survey in January and again in June. Was that because of COVID-19, or is that typically how you would have conducted this survey? Normally, we would only conduct the survey in January, which is what we mm-hmm. had done for the first nine years. But as March rolled around and we were preparing to release the results of our January study, we realized that the world was changing very, very quickly. And soon we uh, began to seek approval to to go to the American public again and ask them some more questions, not only about scripture engagement, but about how COVID-19 was impacting their relationship with the Bible, with church, and with their faith in general. Without talking about what that um, impact might be, did you find that there was significant impact as a result of COVID-19? Yeah, there have been a variety of impacts due to COVID-19. Some of them, I think, are predictable and understandable, Mm -hmm. and some of them were quite surprising. Well, let's start with the January um, survey with uh, the Barna Group. Uh, Tell us what you learned from that uh, survey conducted, the first of the two that was conducted. Well, right at the first of the year, uh, a lot of people who were involved in the Bible cause, think here Bible societies and great partners like YouVersion, who are all about getting the Bible to people, we had kind of banded together and declared 2020 was going to be the year of the Bible. And so it was a, a bubbly time for us right after the first of the year. There were a lot of public events around the year of the Bible. And then we collected the data and we discovered that scripture engagement had actually risen to the highest point we had ever measured, 70.9 million people people in America, adults, had scored scripture engaged. And so we were very excited at the data that we saw in January. Well, that is very encouraging. Then, of course, COVID-19 hit. The coronavirus changed everything. Uh, And one wonders, as you took the survey once again in June, did it literally change everything in terms of people's engagement with scripture? Now, one might assume that given the fact that we're sheltering in place, that uh, this is a very serious uh, time in which people, people's health is compromised and some people are dying, that people would run to the scripture. But what did you find? Well, we found a mixed message. I think, first of all, among Americans who maybe hadn't given much attention to the Bible, they're what we would call Bible disengaged people or people who rarely or never read Scripture, we did find some signs that they were turning to the Bible a little bit more frequently. 
there were people who were exhibiting what we call Bible curious behaviors, or they were beginning to explore scripture from time to time, or search the internet and ask Google, you know, what does the Bible say about this or that? And so that was good news. But on the other end of the spectrum, where Bible-engaged and Bible-centered people are. Folks who are really Bible people. Um, the Bible speaks to their heart. It helps to direct their choices. They tend to interact with the Bible more than once a week on their own. Those people began to experience some serious pressure. And so overall, from that 70.9 million Scripture-engaged people in America that we saw in January, that number fell by 13.1 million between January and June, and we had never seen that before. Now, you uh, write about in the survey the role that the church has played in helping keep people engaged in the Bible. Uh, The fact that churches, for the most part, are not meeting as they had. Um, There's a lot of uh, creativity in how uh, congregations come together. But what role did the the church's uh, inability to meet face-to-face play in that uh, reduction in Bible engagement? That's a great question. And what we think is really going on is that as Americans were um, limited in their ability to meet in those small group settings, those relational settings where maybe they'd have coffee with friends and they would do a Bible study together or they'd meet together in a small group, in many churches, even if they were streaming their church service on a Sunday morning and people could sort of consume it, they really couldn't interact with it in the same way that they would in a regular church service. And so that seemed to put some downward pressure on scripture engagement as a whole. And the other thing that we saw was people just got very busy with other things in life, things that they weren't used to. And one of the data points that emerged out of that was that women, much more than men, experienced downward pressure in their scripture engagement levels. An explanation for that? Well, there have been a number of explanations out in the media, and to be honest, researchers don't know which one it is. But you may have heard previous studies where uh, men are asked how much of the housework they do, and they tend to say, oh, I do half of it. You know, that's kind of the typical male answer. But when you ask uh, their spouses uh, how much of the housework they do, you get a very different answer. So Uh it seems that that men like to think they share in um, homemaking duties or parenting duties, but maybe don't carry quite the load that they think they do. So you can imagine a uh, a newly homeschool mom whose children are at home. Uh, dad's maybe not helping all that much. Mom and dad may be both trying to work from home. Uh, there's just so much time pressure that has squeezed out those normal rhythms of life that we see a frequency of Bible engagement uh, really going down among those people who are at the top level of the scripture engagement segments. And so if you don't spend time with God's Word, because you can't find time to do that while parenting and you know, handling your career and managing your household and cooking all your own meals and all of those kinds of things, um, it's just been a very difficult time for women to manage. You are uh, very complimentary of churches who have uh, turned to uh, innovation to keep the church connected to one another using uh, current technologies. Um, But you also say there's an opportunity for the church to um, have some impact, even though we're not meeting regularly for the most part, uh, with regard to Bible engagement. Uh, Talk a little bit about the role the church might play now in our current configuration scattered across the countryside and not meeting regularly. The the role the church might play in helping people re-engage with Scripture, or is there a role for the church? 
I think there absolutely is. Um, over the last 20 or 30 years, I think the church in America has put a great emphasis on having wonderful large group church services, those large celebratory Sunday morning typically gatherings uh, with great worship music and maybe you know nice lighting and nice sound and all of the things that would be attractive to someone who's maybe walking in for the first time. And while those are good, uh, we haven't applied that same energy to the discipleship practices that really help connect people relationally to one another and to God. And so there are two-way communication technologies out there, like Zoom meetings, or uh, right now I'm talking to you over a Skype connection. We can get people together and intentionally form those small group connections around God's Word, and I really believe it'll make a difference. Mm-hmm. Now, the um, the study that we're talking about Uh, is available uh, and will be available chapter by chapter over the next several months. How can our listeners uh, acquire the State of the Bible 2020 report? If they just get on the Internet and go to stateofthebible.org, that's just all one word, stateofthebible.org, there's an opportunity for them to download the ebook, which is the first four chapters. Those chapters, number one, is kind of a look back at a comparison between 2020 and 2019 current trends. Chapter two begins to look at the impact that COVID-19 has had. Uh, Chapter three looks at the impact of scripture engagement in people's lives. And then chapter four gets into some fascinating new research on how the Bible impacts the well-being of Americans. And so think here, mental and physical health. Uh, Think here, hope and hopefulness and all of the things that have been really under pressure because of COVID-19. There's a fascinating story to tell about how people who are engaged with the Bible are experiencing the COVID-19 pandemic very differently than people who aren't engaged with Scripture. John Flake, thank you so much for talking with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Georgine. God bless. Stateofthebible.org. You can uh, download the first four chapters. Just a a really insightful way of considering how our current circumstance is impacting the way people approach God's Word. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, with everything that's going on in the world right now, question might be, are you discouraged? Well, life, according to Greg Denham, is like riding a bike. You need to keep pedaling. Endurance is essential. But what do you do when you don't feel like pedaling, when you're demoralized and lack strength? Well, the author of the book of Hebrews was speaking to a group of Jewish followers of Jesus who didn't feel like pedaling. It wasn't that they didn't believe in Jesus anymore. It was because they were discouraged due to intense cultural upheaval personal suffering, persecution, and exploitation. You'll find all of that in Hebrews 10, starting with verse 32. But a divine strategy was given to encourage them to keep them moving forward in their faith and to grow their faith in their full potential. So if you're discouraged, hear this. Allow the heroes of our faith to encourage you. The first chapter, or I should say the 12th chapter, first verse of Hebrews reads, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, why does, uh, the question is, what does this mean? That cloud of witnesses in this verse is speaking of the heroes of the faith identified earlier in the 11th chapter of Hebrews. Heroes, heroes rather, who have gone before us and whom God has purposed to speak into our lives, to encourage us even today. Consider 
their testimony. Well, one of these heroes mentioned is Abraham. God promised, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be blessed. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, this was spoken to a man barren and um, quite aged. Well, needless to say, that's quite a promise. But for many years after the promise, Abraham and Sarah still had no children, not one. At times they were discouraged, but eventually Sarah did conceive and bore a son named Isaac. And now, thousands of years later, we can see how that promise given to Abraham has continued to unfold as the entire world has been radically blessed by the Lord Jesus Christ, a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now be encouraged to live by faith in God's promises. Allow the example of Abraham, one of that cloud of witnesses, uh, to speak into your life. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness in Romans 4.3. Faith doesn't mean you won't have problems or disappointments in life. Faith is not saying to yourself, I'm not in pain when you are in pain. It's not saying I don't hurt when you are hurt, when you do hurt. Faith is seeing your problems through the lens of the truth of God's word. It's putting your trust in the one who knows all things and loves you. It's trusting in his perfect timing. It's trusting in his unfolding plan in Christ in your life. Well, here are some great promises to lay hold of. God promises to be with us and to help us. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Isaiah 41.10. God promises to forgive our sins. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1.9. God promises that in Christ, all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28. And God promises salvation to all who believe in Jesus, to all who believe in Jesus. If you confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved, Romans 10, 9. Be encouraged. Keep peddling. Just like Abraham, our lives and our faith can make an impact beyond our lifetime on earth. We can all finish well. See your life as a long endurance run rather than a sprint. I was a sprinter in high school and at the University of Oregon. It's a different kind of training. It's a different perspective, how you run the race. One day I was called upon to run the 800, and I had been a 400-meter runner. So I assumed you start out fast. You, It was an entirely different way to look at that race. And needless to say, I petered out at the end. Well, Hebrews 12.1 says, And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. By nature, a long endurance run doesn't always feel good. It's painful. I can attest to that. At times, it requires just pure grit. This then brings an important distinction. If we base the race of life on our feelings, not only will we give in, it'll give us an inaccurate picture of the reality of God in our lives, but we will be tempted to quit. And I've experienced that temptation while running the race. It's a trap to think if I am feeling good, then God is good. If I'm not feeling good, then God is not good. James 1.3 tells us that trials are the testing of our faith, which means it's an opportunity to experience the faithfulness of God as we go through them. It helps us to move from just knowing of God to experiencing God and his faithfulness. The test, therefore, has less to do with your strength and all to do with God's strength and his faithfulness. Faith has an object, God who never fails. Therefore, your faith in God will never fail. James writes, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. 
So let it grow, for when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. James 1, verses 2 through 4. Be aware of the weight of sin in your own life that saps energy, pulls you down, and demoralizes you. The second verse of Hebrews 12 says, Let us lay aside every weight and sin which so easily ensnares us by removing the small compromises in your life that act like footholds which can then lead to self-defeating strongholds, you will increase your strength and glorify God in your life. One place to look for excess weight is in your relationships. And any healthy relationship is essential to both receive and give forgiveness. It's the way the Lord heals. The Lord wants us to forgive, not only to bring new beginnings and healings to others, but when you choose to forgive someone, you are setting a prisoner free, and that is yourself. Forgiving others is essential that to no longer being under the power of the injury of the injustice that you've experienced. Now, this is a challenge in our time where the where unforgiveness is championed as a virtue. An important perspective is that you didn't have to agree with someone to love them and you don't have to compromise your convictions to love others. Hebrews 12:14 reads, "Work at living in peace with everyone and work at living a holy life, for those who are not holy will not see the Lord." Keep your eyes on Jesus, who kept his eyes on the Heavenly Father. This is the main point in context. The paraphrase in Hebrews 12, 2 reads, When you find yourself dragging in your faith, go over that story again, item by item, that long litany of hostility he plowed through that will shoot adrenaline into your souls. Again, a paraphrase, Hebrews 1 through 3. What story are we uh, to go over and over again to be encouraged? The story of how Jesus endured the ultimate endurance run by giving his life on the cross on Passover as the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the whole world and who resurrected from the dead, ascended into heaven, and is coming back to reign on earth. It could be said that Jesus' long endurance run has brought the greatest blessing the world has ever known. How did Jesus do it? How did he endure? Well, the answer is he trusted the Heavenly Father and his unfolding plan. The question is, do we trust God enough to keep pedaling, to keep running, to keep trusting, and to bring our pain, our needs, and burdens to him? These are important questions to ask ourselves because the reality is the default condition of our heart deep in our psyche because of the original sin of man in Eden is distrust. Jesus came in the full expression of the Father to restore that trust so that we also could have the kind of intimate, trusting relationship that Jesus embodied with the Father. Jesus' life tells us that we can trust in the innate goodness of God and his unfolding plan in our life. Keep your eyes on Jesus, who kept his eyes on God, the Heavenly Father. Jesus came to make us right with God, and it is our Heavenly Father who is training us in righteousness. Keep pedaling. The Heavenly Father is training you and preparing us for greater blessings ahead. Be encouraged in this challenging season. I want to thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great evening. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at Show. And like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.